Okay, well, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm always uh, excited to be here. I'm excited for the opportunity to come and share with you guys. It's always a real treat for, for me to be able to kind of help prepare some of these lessons. And I've really enjoyed all the time that we've been spending in the Old Testament lately. It's, it's been amazing to me how, you know, when we take these deep dives, we really see the gospel flow through the Old Testament. And Blake's done a great job of preparing these lessons. I know he spends a lot of time uh, preparing these. So if you haven't already thanked him for all of the time he puts into that, please do that. So as we talked about last week, uh, we're going to be spending the rest of this year covering the various kings of the Old Testament. We talked about Solomon last week, and we're going to kind of lead up until the time of Christ and talk about what God is doing through these different kingdoms. So Blake uh, approached me a couple of weeks ago and told me about this plan, and he asked me if I would be interested in teaching on one of the kings. And of course, I'm always very happy to do that. And he specifically mentioned Ahab and asked me if I would teach on Ahab. And I hope that doesn't mean that he thinks that maybe I have something in common with Ahab. But, uh, you know, I'm, I, I knew enough about Ahab that to where I thought, you know, I can teach on Ahab. You know, I, you know, I'm familiar with, you know, his story. And so I go home and I open my Bible and uh, turn to Ahab and I I'm kind of shocked and amazed at how much there actually is on Ahab. And in one of my Bibles, I think there was 13 pages covering different stories. And so I was overwhelmed. And, and there's no way I, that you could cover all of that in one lesson. So rather than trying to cover everything, I think God placed on my heart just a couple of stories that I wanted to talk to you guys about today that kind of give us a frame of, of who Ahab was, kind of what his character was, and then also who God is through the story of Ahab. And again, you know, this is going to be the same God from creation to, to, to today, and we're going to see that real consistently today. So I thought uh, to introduce today's lesson, I might tell a personal story of something that happened to me uh, about a month ago. Uh, so about a month ago, I'm driving to work, just my typical morning commute, and I get uh, on the highway, just find my little filed place of my little row of ants that were you know, marching down the highway, and uh, just going with the flow of traffic, and a couple minutes pass, and I look in my rearview mirror, and I see this white Ford F-150 pickup truck, and he's just barreling towards me at like breakneck speed, and you know, I could see he's going to pass me any, any moment, and when he does, he cuts over right in front of me, almost hits me, and he's flying beyond me, and he's weaving in and out of lanes. He's just driving completely recklessly, and as he almost hits me, I'm thinking to myself, what a jerk. I mean, the, the, huh? It was not me. I was not, the, I was not the guy in the Ford F-150. But I thought to myself, what a jerk. And, and, and he's endangering the lives of others. He's endangering my life. And, uh, and, and I thought to myself, you know, he's going to get away with it too. And something like that just irritated me. It, it kind of burnt at me. And, and I kind of was put in, I was thinking, my, my day's starting off wrong now. I'm, I'm kind of in a bad mood. And so I'm, I'm just kind of a little irritated. And I know that I'm probably not the only person who gets upset when they get traffically wronged like that. But so a couple minutes go by, and I'm in a bad mood, but then something happens that makes me makes everything good again. You know, everything is happy, because something happens that I see that makes me smile. About five minutes later, there it is in front of me. It's that same Ford F-150 pickup truck, but now he's on the side of the road with the long arm of the law behind him with his lights flashing. And I thought to myself, yes, justice is served. And I know I shouldn't feel you know, good about somebody else's misfortunes. I shouldn't take any satisfaction in that. But I think that you know, we would all agree that sometimes we just love it when evil gets punished, when justice gets served. And so I thought that that might be a good segue into today's story. Because after reading about Ahab, it kind of occurred to me that, that Ahab, he, in my mind, he was kind of that guy driving that Ford F-150 pickup truck. 
So as we get into our lesson, uh, just to give a little bit of a backdrop of where we are in history, last week Blake talked about Solomon, and Solomon, we remember, was David's son, and he was the one who ultimately built the temple. Remember, David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, you're, you've got too much blood on your hands, you've had too much, too much war in your kingdom, my, my, king, my temple is going to be built during a time of peace. So Solomon, David's son, ends up building the temple. And we remember that Solomon was very wealthy. Remember Blake said that they had so much wealth and gold that they built their shields for battle out of gold. And Solomon was also very wise. Remember he asked God for wisdom and he was given wisdom. And he was the one who penned many of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So he had this great wealth beyond measure, this wisdom beyond measure. And because of David and because of how big the kingdom has gotten, this is really kind of what we would refer to as this pinnacle of Jewish history. You know, times are good. Times have never been better. And so Solomon builds the temple. And after he builds the temple, he prays this prayer of dedication to the temple to the Lord. So he prays the prayer of dedication, and God responds. And the way God responds, I think, is, is important for us. He says, If you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as your father David did, and do, if you do all of my commands... And, and if you obey my laws and you worship me, I will establish your royal throne forever. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and you do not observe my laws and you go off and you serve other gods, then I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to reject you and your kingdom will be a heap of rubble. So I want us to keep that in mind as we study Ahab today because it's going to come into play into our story today and it's really going to come into play in a lot of the kings of the Old Testament. So... Unfortunately for Solomon, you know, he, he has ultimately his downfall. And he, uh, as Blake mentioned last week, he marries a lot of women. And many of his women are foreign women. And they have this influence over Solomon. And so Solomon ends up building uh, altars to other gods. You know, new, rule number one for, you know, for, for God. That's a big no-no. So he builds these altars for, to other gods. And then before too long, we see, you know, this worship of other gods. It just kind of begins to accelerate. So after Solomon's downfall, we see our kingdom divides. Remember, we have Israel in the north and we have Judah in the south. And in both of these kingdoms, we see this procession of kings leading up to our story today. And remember, Blake shared that chronology chart last week. And it showed you know, each one of these branches and it showed all of the kings. And by each one of the kings, it had a thumbs up or a thumbs down or maybe a thumbs to the side telling us you know, whether it was a good, bad, a good or bad king or whether the king was faithful or unfaithful. And so in Judah, we have this handful of kings. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. But in Israel, we see a long line of just evil, wicked kings. Just one, each one is worse than the one before him. So we see thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs down. And by the time we get to Ahab, who's the seventh wicked king in a long line of wicked kings, we probably shouldn't even be using thumbs anymore. It should probably be a different finger altogether. So what inevitably has happened is wicked, this wickedness has just gotten compounded upon itself. And so as we go from one king to the next, sin just begins to pick up speed. And so one king may say, okay, well, we're not going to sin like that. We're, we may do these other small sins, but we're not going to sin like that. And then the next, the next generation may come along and say, okay, well, well, we'll sin this way and we'll do this, but we're going to do it in secret. And then another generation goes along and what's done in secret is now being done in public. And so by the time we get to Ahab, this sin snowball is just getting out of control and it's consuming them. 
And we can see this same pattern in our culture today. You, you know, what was forbidden or taboo maybe 40 years ago, over time, you know, it just kind of ceases to shock us. You know, what was forbidden in one generation, the next generation may be done in secret. And then it's maybe done in not so secret. And before too long, you know, it eventually becomes acceptable. It becomes normalized and maybe even mainstream. So even though we're separated from this, in the, from this story by about 3,000 years, you know, the ways that, and the patterns that we see sin creeping into our lives isn't all that different. So uh, today we're going to be reading in 1 Kings, uh, starting in chapter 16, but kind of re- skipping around between 16 and 21. So if you have your Bibles, you might pull those open. And uh, I'm going to start reading in chapter 16, verse 29, and this is going to give us our character introduction to our, to our main players in today's story. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than did any of the kings before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we get our... Uh, biblical introduction to Ahab, our, our star of the story today. And of course, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anybody before him. And in fact, all the sins of the guys before him, they're, they're nothing compared to what Ahab's doing. You know, he, they're trivial compared to, to what Ahab is doing. So we're no longer worshiping Baal in secret. We're now doing, worshiping Baal, these false gods in the public square. You're, you, now you can get your Baal keychains. You can get your Baal t-shirts. The kids can bring their Baal lunchboxes to school. So you know, sin is just really running rampant from that perspective. And we also get our introduction to Jezebel. And Jezebel is a pagan princess, and it tells us that she's the daughter of Ethbaal. And in case we forget, they're so kind enough to remind us of the God that they worship. It's right there in their names, Jezebel and Ethbaal. So Baal worship is so ingrained in their culture that they have this reputation for their devotion to him. And they have this reputation for persecuting the prophets of God. And persecuting probably isn't even the right word to use because what they're actually doing is they're hunting down and brutally murdering the prophets of God. They've got this reputation for being like that. And the reason why they're so upset with these prophets of God is prophets of God usually come on the scene to bring truth. And when truth needs to be brought, that means falsehood is kind of prevailing. And so, you know, we see this, this, this conflict between this, these evil, wicked kings serving the false gods and the prophets who come on the scene. And Jezebel, she's got her own prophets. She's got these prophets of Baal, that aren't necessarily really prophets at all. They're just basically yes-men that uh, Jezebel and Ahab may consult from time to time, and they basically tell Jezebel and Ahab what they want to hear. But they don't serve any real God, they don't bring any real truth, and they don't have any real power. But So you can imagine how we would have this conflict between prophets of God and Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. So as we read on, we're going to get our introduction to our main prophet of God today. And Ahab had uh, a number of prophets of God confront him, but Elijah is the primary one that we read about in his story. And Elijah enters the scene here in chapter 17, and it says, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 
So Elijah enters the scene here, and he makes this bold proclamation. He says, as, as sure as the Lord of God of Israel lives, the one true God lives. So he's saying that this is the one true God, not your Baal gods. The one true God lives, whom I serve. He's pledging his allegiance to him. And then he says, he drops this bombshell. He says, there's not going to be any rain in here until I give the word. And that's a bombshell for a couple of reasons. You know, first, you know, uh, this, this is, uh, you know, he's basically saying that you're, uh, you know, you're, not go- you're going to have this drought. It's going to economically impact you. And the second reason this is, this is a bombshell is because he's spitting in the face of Baal. Baal is this, this god of fertility. He's a god, uh, basically, that you prayed to if you wanted agricultural prosperity. And so, in, in other words, he's the god of rain. And so, by saying that you're not going to have any rain unless God does it through me, that's saying that your God has no power. We're, we're, you're not going to see a drop of rain, and there's nothing that you can do about it. So that's not a very popular position to take when you're confronting the king of, of Israel at the time. If, 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 you're, if you're confronting Ahab and Jezebel, you know, they're, they're going to be very upset with you. And ultimately, Elijah's going to have a hit put out on him because, you know, remember, they're not, they're not very friendly to you. They're out, you know, murdering your, your friends. And so he has this hit put out on him, and he's forced to flee. And so the next time we see uh, uh, Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel encounter Elijah is a little bit later, and we're going to see him in this encounter at Mount Carmel, and we're familiar with this. We've covered this story in this class before, and we've covered it a number of times in our church. And in chapter 18, it begins to tell this story of this showdown at Mount Carmel. It says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and it said, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah, he went and presented himself to Ahab. And so when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And then Elijah responds, I'm not the one who's made trouble on Israel. You and your family have made trouble on Israel because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. So go back and remember what God responded to Solomon when he uh, dedicated the temple. He said, If you follow me, if you obey my word, then your kingdom will last forever. But if you do not, if you disobey my laws... And if you follow other gods and you worship other gods, then I'm going to reject you. I'm going to, to uh, make your kingdom a pile of rubble. And Elijah's saying exactly that. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. And then he says, now summon the people all over Israel, get all of the prophets of Baal and get all of the prophets of Asherah and meet me on top of Mount Carmel because we're going to have a little contest. And so Elijah brings everybody together, and he's going to drop this challenge down. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and brings everybody together. And Elijah says to everybody, he says, How long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So he's drawing a line in the sand and saying, No more going back and forth between God and Baal. Today we're going to find out who the one true God is, and we're going to serve him. So we get to our familiar story of the showdown. And this is a great story. So Elijah says, get two bulls for us. I want you to get one for Baal and get one for God. And we're going to cut it up and we're each going to have these sacrifices to our gods. But we're not going to set it on fire. God's going to bring the fire. So uh, he issues this challenge and the Baal prophets basically agree to it. Because in, in their minds, they're thinking, okay, our God is the God of rain, the God of thunder, the God of lightning. Lightning can strike a fire. So, so they're, they're agreeable to this. And Elijah says, great, you know, we're, we're, this is going to be a great contest. You guys go first. And so they do, they do. They, the, Baal God, the Baal prophets put their sacrifice, put, they cut up the bull, they put it on the wood, 
And then they begin to chant, and they begin to try to get Baal to answer them. They, you know, they're saying, oh, Baal, God, please answer us. Please respond from heaven and consume this sacrifice. And nothing happens. So uh, they start singing, and they start dancing, and they start prancing around the, the altar. And, of course, nothing is happening. And before too long, Elijah, he, I kind of picture him as this little bit of a smart aleck guy because he begins to mock them. I, I picture him reading the, the Wall Street Journal and he just peeks over his paper and he says, uh, you got just shout louder, shout louder and they'll hear you. Shout louder and I, I, I'm sure Baal, he's, he's on vacation or he's gone to the bathroom maybe or maybe he's just gone on a walk, but I'm sure if you shout louder, they will uh, he'll, he'll respond. And that's in the Bible, but the, and not the Wall Street Journal part, but, but the other part is, is it's in the Bible that he is mocking them. He's, he's, he knows that Baal is, is, is a joke, but he's just telling them, yeah, just, just do it. I, I, just shout louder. I'm sure it's, it's, he'll be there any moment. So they, they do that. They shout louder. They sing louder. They dance harder. And they tr- are trying to convince this Baal, false Baal god to come and consume their sacrifice. And ultimately, they end up cutting themselves and, and pleading, pleading, hoping that Baal will see how desperately they need him but nothing happens they're met with complete silence and so eventually they're just forced to you know hang their heads in shame and walk away but then it becomes Elijah's turn and Elijah goes up to this old altar of the Lord that had been destroyed and he begins to repair it and he picks up stones he picks up 12 stones each uh, representing one of the tribes of Israel and this isn't in the Bible but I kind of picture uh, Elijah, when he picks up each stone, he's, he's remembering something about God. He's, you know, he may pick up one and say, yeah, I remember the, the tribe of Judah. I remember the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of, of Levi. And, and, and so you know, he's remembering things. And he may be remembering other times in, in history where God has shown up. He may pick up a stone and say, yeah, I remember when God showed up for Gideon. I sure could use that about now. Here's where God showed up for, Ahab, or for, for David. I sure could use that right about now and so he he puts these stones around the altar and then he he digs this trench around the altar as well and then he places the bull on top of the altar and he tells people i want you to go get four jugs of water and so they go get four jugs of water and he has them pour it all over the altar so just soaking it wet and then he says, I want you to go get four jugs of water and I want you to do it again. So he soak, they soak the altar again. He says, I want you to do it a third time because I don't want anybody to think that this thing got lit on fire accidentally. So they do it. They soak it a third time. And by the time they're done soaking this thing with water, it's so saturated that the water is now pooled up in the trench that he dug. And so then Elijah steps forward and he prays to God and he says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So he says this heartfelt prayer, asking God to show up just so people would know that he is God. And as he does that, fire rains down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It burns up everything. It burns up the, the, the sacrifice. It burns up the wood, the rocks. And it says it licks all the water in the trench completely, completely dry. And after that, all the people, they, they just fall face down and they worship God. They say, this is the one true God and we are going to serve him. And after, after this, Elijah looks at the prophets of Baal and he says, seize those guys. And so they chase them down, they hunt them down, and they slaughter all of the prophets of Baal. And you would, we would hope, we would hope at this time that Ahab has seen this. He's seen the one true God come. And we would hope that, that he gets it, 
that he's going to turn from his ways. And Elijah hopes the same thing. Elijah goes up to Ahab and he says, Ahab, Ahab, you, you, you saw what just happened. You know, we've got to celebrate this. The one true God has showed us who he is. Go and eat and drink and celebrate. And so Ahab does. He, he eats and drinks. And then Elijah goes back to Ahab and he says, Ahab, you know, the Lord's going to bring the rain that we've been asking for. So I want you to, you've got you to gotta get back home before the rain starts. So Ahab gets in his chariot and he fires off as fast as he can back to his palace. And, and Elijah's so excited because he wants to get back there and make sure this word gets out. So Elijah tucks his robe into his belt and he runs right alongside Ahab all the way back to his, his palace. And so we're so hopeful that Ahab's going to turn around at this point. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Because unfortunately, when he gets back, he's back into the evil influence of Jezebel. And he's going to continue along his evil, wicked path of ruling. And so Ahab gets back there and he tells Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. How he had killed all the prophets of the Lord and how the Lord showed up. And uh, uh, Jezebel basically sends a message to uh, Elijah saying, you're dead meat. She said, she says, but if, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So she basically reinstates the hit that has been put on Elijah. So again, he's forced to go in hiding. So, you know, unfortunately we have this huge hope for Ahab but we don't, we don't get satisfied here. You know, he's going to continue to rule in Israel just as wicked as he, as he has before. But what's interesting here is that God is not giving up on Ahab. God's still making himself known to Ahab. You know, if we read on into the next chapter, and we don't have time to get into this story specifically, but I just want to give you an overview. If we read on to the next chapter, Ahab's, is, his kingdom's going to come under attack. And he's, his kingdom's going to come under attack by the, the Syrian forces. And the Syrian forces are far superior to his. And so Ahab's initial response is to just raise the white flag and say, okay, you guys, you guys can have everything that we have because we, we are no match for you. But then God, God comes to Ahab through a prophet and says, no, God's going to give you this victory. He's going to show up so that you and everybody else would know that he is the one true God of Israel. And so, you know, we see this time and time again that Ahab sees that he's the one true God, but, but Ahab just does not respond. So sometime later, we're going to get to our next story, and our next story is about a guy by the name of Naboth. So it, this story is in chapter 21. It says, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you what it's worth. So here we have our king Ahab, our wicked king Ahab. We have a poor farmer named Naboth, and we have this vineyard. And the vineyard just happens to be right next to uh, Ahab's summer home. And Ahab, you know, wants to have, he, he's, he's coveting this, this vineyard because he wants to make it a vegetable garden so he could grow his tomatoes, so he could make his famous Ahab's wicked salsa for the Super Bowl party. So he makes Naboth what seems like a pretty reasonable re- real estate transaction. He says, I'll, I'll give you a better vineyard for this if you'll, if you'll just give it to me. Or if you just want to get out of the business altogether, I'll, I will, I'll just give you cash for it. I'll pay you the market, you know, fair market value for it right now. So that seems like it's the most reasonable Ahab that we've seen so far. 
But Naboth replied, he says, the, the Lord forbid that I should give you this in, the inheritance of my ancestors. So he refuses Ahab's offer. And you know, you know, we might ask, you know, why, why, would, why would Naboth do that? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't he you know, want to appease the king? Or you know, why not upgrade? It seems like he's offering you know, a pretty sweetheart deal. But we find out Naboth is faithful to God. And when he says that the Lord forbid that he should give you, that he should give the inheritance, he means the Lord actually forgives it. Because when, when God gave the land to the tribes of Israel, he, he said that, that this, this is going to be your permanent possession. This land is not going to be transferred from one tribe to the next. And you, if, if hard times come, you can lease it out, you can have a ground lease, but every 50th year in the year of Jubilee, it's going to go back to the original owner. So this is your permanent possession. You are not to sell it. And the irony is here, Ahab, Ahab, as king of Israel, he would have known this part of the law. And he he just sees this this vineyard as a forbidden fruit, and so he's covetous of it. He's trying to circumvent the law or get Naboth to to be disobedient, to get what he wants. And so Naboth, on the other hand, he's taken this big risk of faith by refusing the king's request and by uh, being obedient to God. So Ahab then went home. He's upset. He's sullen and angry because Naboth had said, I'm not going to give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he lays on his bed. He's sulking, and he's refusing to eat. He's crying. He's just wanting to sleep all the time. He's very depressed. And his wife Jezebel then comes in and asks him, why are you so sullen? Why, why won't you eat? And he answers her, because I, I, wanted, this, I wanted this vineyard that's right next to our palace so I could make a, a vegetable garden, and Naboth won't sell it to me. And so I'm really upset. And, and so he throws this little pity party, and then Jezebel says what any good wife would say. She says, man up, you sissy. She said, is this how you should act as king over the Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up, and I'll get you this vineyard of Naboth. And so she basically kind of walks off and mumbles and says, don't send a man to do a woman's job. And then Jezebel concocts this plan to have Naboth basically taken care of. So Jezebel writes letters to uh, to the elders of Naboth's town, and she puts she signs Ahab's name to it and, and puts Ahab's seal on the letters. And she says, proclaim a day of fasting and gather all the people around and I want you to sit Naboth at a table. And across from Naboth at the table, I want you to put two scoundrels. And these scoundrels are going to, I want them to accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. And Jezebel's uh, request here, it's very, very deceitful, but it's also very cunning. Because she knows the law well enough to know that if, if two people accuse Naboth of blasphemy, then the penalty is going to be death. So the elders end up doing exactly what Jezebel commanded. They proclaim this day of fasting and they seat Naboth in this prominent place. And they put the two scoundrels in front of him. And they end up, curse, or he, they end up accusing him of cursing God and the king. And so ultimately they end up taking Naboth out of the city. They, they beat him. They brutally beat him and stone him to death. And then they sent word back to Jezebel saying, Naboth has now been killed. He's been stoned to death. And as soon as Jezebel heard that, she, she goes to Ahab and says, Oh, Ahab, you, you know that, that vineyard that you wanted? Well, you can go and take it now because, because I've taken care of, of Naboth. He's no longer alive. He's dead. So you can go ahead and take it. So when Ahab heard this, he got, he got up and he went and he went into the vineyard to take possession of the vineyard. So here we got Naboth because of his faith. He's falsely accused. He's brutally beaten and stoned to death. Also, Ahab could have this vegetable garden. And 
I'm sure we're all probably you know, very sick of Ahab right now. You know, we want him to get what is coming to him. But then you know, just hang in there because it's coming. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah's back. Go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And so Ahab looks in his rearview mirror and he sees the lights flashing. So uh, then Ahab says to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. And Elijah says, oh yes, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Get him, God. And I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab, will die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. And then it goes on to say, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. So here we have our justice. You know, God has shown up. He's, He's pulled Ahab over, and justice has been served. But then, the Bible goes on to say, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster on his day. I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So let me get this straight. Ahab's getting a break right now. Ahab's show, God is showing mercy to Ahab, and, it, and this doesn't really set right with me. Because Ahab and Jezzy, they've been murdering God's people, and they, they've been going around getting, encouraging God's people to serve other gods. They've just been completely wicked and disobedient. And now they've, they've murdered this, this man of God, all so Ahab could get a vineyard, and they're going to get a break on this? And as uncomfortable as that makes us, the Bible tells us, yeah, yeah, that, that's what happens. And, and, and it happens often in the Old Testament. When we, no matter how rebellious and how wicked people are, when they repent, when they turn towards God, God responds, and God responds with mercy. And that's not to say that justice isn't going to be done. We know that God is a God of justice. Ahab's going to get his justice. It, it, may, it may happen in his son's, uh, during his son's life, but Ahab, he's going to get the justice that God promised. God keeps his promises and Ahab's going to turn away from God. We're going to find, we'd find out if we keep reading that you know, he's going to turn from God and he's going to mo- die in one of the most unceremonious ways possible. But here for a moment, Ahab repents and God responds. Ahab's personal repentance brings unmerited mercy. And I know the Pharisee in me doesn't like this. It, it, it's a tough pill for us to swallow because as I think about this, I think we, we tend to want justice when it comes to the evil, wicked Ahabs of the world. We want justice when it comes to the wickedness in others, but we want mercy when it comes to our own wickedness. We want justice when it comes to others, but we want mercy for ourselves. And the cool thing about God, with, with God, we get both. 
we get mercy because Jesus took our justice. So and one of the lessons that we are able to take from, from Ahab here is that Ahab was shown mercy. You can't out God's grace and mercy. Not even wicked king Ahab could out God's grace and mercy. And that should weigh pretty heavy on our hearts because if I'm being honest with myself, I know that you know, there's, there's a lot more of Ahab in, in myself than I'd care to admit. And even if we don't take it that far, if, if, if we just say, you know, I'm pretty good, you know, the, re- the reality is when we stand before a righteous God, a God that requires our own righteousness, we're all on equal footing with Ahab. And so the first time I read through these stories of Ahab, I was, I, you know, was bent up on wanting wicked Ahab to get put in his place. I wanted justice for Ahab. And when we read the Bible the first time, when we read something for the first time, like the Old Testament for the first time, or when we read a passage for the first time, we tend to read it for facts. We want to know the who, the what, the when, the where, the how. So we, when we read for the Bible for facts, we get the facts. And we get that one-inch-deep view of the Bible. You know, we, it, we get kind of the picture of God, but not necessarily the whole story. When we read the Bible a second time, a third time, we begin to want to see what God's really revealing to us. And so we read the Bible for truth. And when we read the Bible for truth, we see God reveal himself. We get the facts, but we also get something much, much deeper. So if we look back at this story, looking for God to reveal himself, we see that this is not the first time that God was merciful to Ahab. And in fact, God has been merciful this entire time. And, and starting with the very, very first verse that I read, God showed his mercy. It said, In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. 22 years. Ahab reigned in Israel for 22 years. And just a couple of kings before Ahab, we have this king by the name of Zimri. And Zimri reigned in Israel for seven days. But Ahab got 22 years. God should have looked at Ahab and saw the wickedness and and, and said, well, you know, Zimri just got seven days. I'm going to give you 30 seconds and then we're going to move on to the next guy. But he doesn't. He gives Ahab 22 years. And what should have been 22 years of God's wrath and God's punishment was 22 years of mercy. It was 22 years of God trying to make Ahab see that he was the one true God. It was 22 years of God debunking Baal, 22 years of bringing fire from heaven, 22 years of God giving his military for protection and giving military victories to Ahab. But more than anything else, it's 22 years of God's just aggressive pursuit of one of his lost children. And so going back to this Ahab in the Ford F-150, if God was the police officer who pulled him over, you know, there wouldn't have been that one-and-done speeding ticket that I would have given him. In fact, if God was the police officer, uh, when I left work that evening, I probably w- still would have seen them pulled over on the side of the road, except for, you know, they, they might be sitting on the grass now, and God would be sit- sitting there just talking patiently with Ahab, trying to get him to see things his way. Paul writes in, in Romans, he said, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to him. And, and so, you know, God has made himself obvious to Ahab. And so he deserves this anger, this, wick, this, this, this wrath from God. And so we should expect to see that. And we do see, you know, God's justice on Ahab. But then Paul goes on to say, he says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? 
So Paul, his words here are just as true for Ahab as they were when Paul wrote them, and they're just as true for us. You know, because of, because of God's mercy and the justice and righteousness already provided by Jesus, we're not met by a God of anger. We're met by a God of patience. We're met by this God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, and, and we serve this patient, forgiving God that pursues us in hope that we would turn from our sins and turn towards him. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God whose grace and mercy far exceeds our ability to sin. And this was true for Ahab, and it's true for us. And just like Ahab, you know, we serve this God whose pursuit of us, God is pursuing us, and his pursuit of us is woven through our story just like it was for Ahab's. And we, we may not see the mercies, but we know that they're there. So as, as we look back on this story of Ahab, and the mercy that flows through it. I want us to, to, for our application of our scripture, I would encourage us to make, take some time this week just to look back and reflect on some of our Ahab moments. And if we look hard enough, I know that we'll see God's mercy meeting us there and God's mercy flowing through our story. So pay attention to God's mercy and let's, let's go to God and thank him. Let's, our, our, for our application, I want us to pray to God and thank him for the mercy. Thank him for pursuing us. Wicked King Ahab, he, he did more to anger the, the Lord than any of those before him. But God relentlessly pursued him. And because of God and because of who he is, although Ahab's sin was met with justice, even wicked King Ahab was met in his repentance with God's grace and mercy. And for us, because of who God is, he's unchanging, he's kind, he's loving, he's abundantly patient. God's pursuit of our own hearts, just like Ahab's, never ends. And because of the justice and righteousness offered by Christ, we too can experience the same love and mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this group of gentlemen. I thank you for the opportunity that we get and the freedom that we have to study your word together. I thank you for the grace and mercy that you show us through, this, through your word. And I thank you for the fact that we can never escape your love. You know, you are in constant pursuit of us in our hearts. And your, your deepest desire is for us to love and honor you. And your love for us has no boundaries. Lord, I ask that you be with each man in this room. I ask that you help us to be better disciples in each one of our areas of our lives, in all of our relationships, in our work, in our marriages, and in our families. We ask that you just encourage us to be, to be lights in this world and for us to sharpen each other. We love you, Lord, and it's in your son Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.